Good evening to you all. How is the sound in the back? Okay. So I'd like to point out that if you were uh, in a different environment, the two or three minutes that you spent waiting for the talk to start would have entailed So how's it going out there? Are you at the point where you're wondering why you thought this would be a good idea? (laughs) So it's a a huge thing to be without the digital devices. Somebody told me once that it was uh, being without their smartphone was a little bit like being uh, a person with a phantom limb syndrome or something, you know. Every once in a while they'd find themselves, you know, reaching in their pocket for something that actually wasn't there. So if you've had that impulse today, that's a great place for observation in terms of the Buddhist teachings, because in watching that very impulse arise in the mind, you can can see that it would be interesting to check what was going on right before the impulse arose. Like right before that impulse arose to um, check your smartphone. Now, can you think of such an occasion today? Just briefly turn your memory clock back. So for most people, right before that reaching for something that they could find as a uh, consolation, there's some sort of discontent or there's some kind of boredom that's present there or perhaps a state of mind or body that is uncomfortable or maybe it's a sensory or emotional experience that you would rather not have. And then um, you see in this way what the Buddha saw in his own time which was when we experience discontent we reach for something which we imagine might be pleasant or interesting to kind of cover it over or to become the new experience to substitute for that that thing that we're not finding satisfying or uh, enjoyable. So this tendency of mind to want to rapidly rid ourselves of non-preferred experience is very deep-rooted. And the Buddha says that the untrained mind has only uh, one way of responding to discontent or difficulty, and that's to look around to find some kind of sense pleasure that it can get to replace the experience that it's actually there. So it's an interesting thing to see that unpleasantness or lack of contentment with an immediate experience actually causes craving in the mind in the absence of mindfulness. So, so you can see there's the arising of a wanting of something to be different or a wanting something more, 
when we get experience of a certain type. And then when the craving is there, we want something particular, something pleasant to arise right then and there in real time. Which is another way of saying we're we try to make something be different in the way we want it to be. And often we can't do this, actually accomplish this goal of making something different or more to our preferences or enjoyable rather than uh, boring or neutral or painful or unpleasant because we don't have that kind of span of control over things. So that then becomes the lead-in to frustration and agitation and maybe some other strategy to get things more to our liking. But generally we can't succeed with that. Or say we have the situation of having an experience that is to our liking. Okay, so this is good in terms of our uh, human preferences. Something is going on and we like it, we find it uh, satisfying and enjoyable. But what happens then when that very experience starts to change or is passed, passes away and is replaced by something else? Then the mind tends to get very gripping. It wants to hold on to that thing that it's finding enjoyable and uh, rewarding. Or it wants to kind of get it back. Have you had the experience today where maybe you had a, had a stretch of practice where you could you know, stay pretty embodied for a while, then all of a sudden the mind was running around doing its mind thing and getting lost here and there and wanting to get it back. You know, I want to get it back how it was, you know, that last sitting or that last walking period. Then you see there's suffering directly from the longing to make that thing happen again. So that's another way we cling to a preferred version. And we spend a tremendous amount of time and energy as humans trying to get things to be the way we want them to be and to keep them that way. Of course we do. You know, we don't want to suffer. If we had our, our preference, you know, we would have one pleasant experience followed by another uh, in all dimensions of our life, right? Pleasant sounds, pleasant, pleasant sights, pleasant thoughts, pleasant emotions, pleasant tastes, pleasant body sensations. We would just keep it rolling that way where we would have all of this um, one thing after another, only improving, only getting more and more pleasant and more and more satisfying as uh, new experiences arose. But that's not the way it is. So the Buddhist path is one of realism. And the Buddha speaks very often about how this very tendency of mind to want to 
create or manufacture uh, satisfaction based on this dimension of pleasantness is actually a delusion and a source of a lot of suffering to us because we don't actually have the span of control to be able to do that. We don't want to suffer, of course, and we have lots of strategies to make things uh, so we get what we want and don't get what we don't want. But the problem is it's generally misapplied effort. Now, I want to be clear about time frames here when I'm talking about this attempt to get things to be the way that we want them to be as misapplied effort. So it is true that we can, of course, set a, uh, an intention for our life. You know, we can plan things. We know what time we need to get up in order to get to work on time, right? So we know we can front load certain things. You know, if I want to be home uh, in time to, for dinner, I need to leave work by this time. And if I need to leave work at this time, that means I need to, you know, wrap up my stuff by this time to get to the car, to get to the subway, etc. So that is all true. We do have control, some control in those kinds of ways. And that's part of what's confusing to us where we have much less control, however, is in what arises from moment to moment in our immediate experience. In what arises, for instance, in our sight, in hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and what kinds of thoughts and emotions are actually present. So this is very hum, uh, confusing to our, uh, us humans because even though we sometimes have some control about arises in the immediate sense, very often we don't. And if you know anything about how we're conditioned as human beings, this intermittent reinforcement is the most addictive thing to us, right? Circumstances where we sometimes have influencer control. If you were to look, for instance, at some of the the mouse studies um, where they have, uh, researchers have mice and they train them so that if they hit a lever, a pellet rolls down a little chute and they get to eat it. So for a while they would train them, you know, you hit the lever, you get the pellet, then they, they did the experiment of, well, what if, the, what if the pellet only comes down once in a while? And they found that the mice would like hit the lever, 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 right? Or if any of you have ever been to a casino <laughs> and either yourself or someone else, uh, you know, have had a run with cards, you know, yeah, you have a run where you're, you're winning and then you start to lose. And so what is, what is the reaction for most humans? It's like, well, you know, you just kind of like try to get it back, try to get it back, try to get it back. So um, 
with these conditions of intermittent influence and control, um, the tendency is to increase our efforts to get what we want. But control eludes us, and then we get frustrated and try to find something that's pleasant uh, to paper over the whole situation, right? Isn't this the, the path to addiction when you think about it? Right. So there's some kind of distress there in the mind. The, the, the mind is uh, kind of drowning in the distress. It looks for a way to get out. Oh, let's see, you know, if I, you know, if I, if I drank tonight or if I, you know, uh, took this particular drug tonight, then that kind of, you know, dampens that experience and replaces it with one that's pleasant. But then again, that kind of fix is a temporary thing, and then you're back the next morning with, you know, some of the same emotions and maybe a hangover and maybe some remorse for what you did the night before. But that whole addictive cycle isn't an aberration for us human beings. It's, it's a kind of a vivid illustration of this principle of how our minds tend to work. So what I've just said to you in a certain way is a description about how craving arises in the heart and mind. This craving being the Buddha's understanding of how delusion expresses itself in our human experience. He says, we suffer because of delusion. We don't understand how reality operates, and so we're not aligned with it. But the way that delusion is expressed is in the form of craving, of wanting. Craving, thirsting is, a, is another way craving is sometimes described. And this craving arises in response to the rub between what we want and what we actually experience. And that difference is a form of what the Buddha calls dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, which is usually translated as unsatisfactoriness. So we're set up to kind of want to be control freaks, but we can't. (laughs) And that's a dilemma. That's a dilemma for us. Now, this might seem like it's kind of a gloomy uh, existential situation because there's a big gap between what we'd like and what we get. Have you noticed that? But sometimes in some ways we can actually bridge that gap between what we want and what we get. And in fact, the clearer and the more wise our heart-minds are, the more successful we actually are in doing so. So this is a way of saying if our reality testing improves, then we can organize our efforts and our activities much more uh, usefully to try to create happiness and well-being for ourselves and for other people. But what about the other times where 
we don't have immediate control of what we're experiencing, what then? So the Buddha says that the, the key to maximum happiness and minimal discretionary suffering is in how we learn to attend to what's present. So I just said earlier that we don't control what we experience most of the time. That's beyond our span of control. We don't control our immediate experience most of the time. So we're always getting this mix of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience, preferred experience, unwanted experience, and kind of uninteresting experience. But the Buddha says that the key to maximum happiness and minimal discretionary suffering is in how we learn to attend to what's present. So if we attend to things in an unwise manner, then we will suffer more in relationship to them. And if we attend to things in a wise and compassionate manner, then suffering will decrease in relationship to them. So to get back to some illustrations for you. So take the case where you're in a romantic relationship and the relationship ends. Say you're the dumpy. (laughs) We've all been there, (laughs) most of us anyway. Say you're the dumpy. Now, we all know circumstances where somebody has had that kind of experience where they can't seem to let go, right? They can't seem to let go of the person. They can't seem to let go of their emotional distress in relationship to the person. They can't seem to accept what's happening. They can't move on from it. So that's a kind of uh, macro example of this tendency of mind to be in a state of clinging and the kind of suffering that can come from that. And usually the the cure starts to happen for uh, a being in that kind of situation where on some kind of level they finally accept it's gone and this is the way it is. This is the new reality. Right? And make some kind of adjustment to that. Right? Begin to surrender to the truth of this relationship is over, say. And this is how it is. And now my life is like this. And now this is where I need to attend. Not being lost in, you know, fantasies of the past or thoughts of distress about the future or all the rest of it. But it's through a a a kind of... uh, realistic acceptance of the truth of what is there and then using and deploying the resources of the heart and mind for that new reality that's being experienced in the present to be okay. To be okay. So the mind, in other words, withdrawing from being lost in resistance to the situation unwise attention, 
to using the resources of the heart-mind to actually connect to the truth of how it is in a way that has mindfulness in it and has compassion in it towards oneself, starting with oneself, right? No longer flailing around with wishes and hopes and angers and grief and all the rest of it, but allowing those states to be there if they're there, but then turning the resources of the heart and mind towards those states. That's the place of empowerment because that's wise attention then. So the Buddha talks a lot about impermanence, uh, which is usually translated, uh, usual translation of this Pali word called Nietzsche. He says, all compound things have the nature to pass away. Well, what's a compound thing? Well, the Buddha would say, anything that you can experience is a compound thing. And what, what does that mean exactly? He's saying that things come into existence because of causes and conditions. You know, we came into existence because because our father and mother, you know, had something going on there and, you know, then there's us and, you know, we look like this because of our genome and then our life is such because of these circumstances we've had in our life and what we've learned from things and who we've met and where we've lived and what our nutritional uh, access has been and you know, the culture that we grew up in, the home situation that we grew up in, these are all causes and conditions that have resulted in the particular display of, we'll say, the Winnie, (laughs) right? Or the version that you are. So we're not... uh, independently arisen. And at a certain point, this body and this mind, which is supported by particular conditions, will change in a certain kind of way where it will actually pass away. Because we don't govern what happens. We can take care of our health, you know, we can get uh, good health care, we can eat well, and we can exercise and do all those kinds of things, but We can't say, well, I've decided I'm not going to die. Well, you know, we can say it, but I think there's been limited success with that approach. So this is all pointing to uh, the truth of impermanence. So the Buddha talks a lot about impermanence and how things are conditionally arising. So you might be wondering why I'm going on about this topic of impermanence after talking about uh, lack of control in relationship to arising experience. So the link is this. The reason we can't generally control arising experiences at the six sense doors, meaning we can't control 
what's coming in through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and uh, thinking, and emotions, and all the rest of that, is because they're conditioned. So they stem from and manifest causes and conditions that we don't actually govern. So we have a contribution there in that we provide some of the conditions for what arises in real time. And the biggest single condition that we contribute to what arises in real time is the quality and the type of our attention. So in particular, whether mindfulness is present, mindfulness and other factors of mind that are, that are considered offshoots of generosity, loving kindness and compassion and wisdom. So if those things are there in real time as part of our contribution to what's happening, then we have the option of having a, a maximally powerful and empowered relationship to immediate experience. So in the absence of those kinds of things, say there's no mindfulness and you're experiencing a certain kind of difficult emotional state. Well, you know, it's just kind of going to kind of run, run on its own until at a certain point it burns out. If there's mindfulness and compassion there and there's a, a, a difficult emotional state that arises, you recognize the experience in, in real time with a kind of uh, neutral, interested acceptance of the fact that that state is there. And there is present within the heart-mind some goodwill, some self-support, some wisdom, some compassion. Oh yeah, this is a, this is a tough one, baby cakes. Right? Oh, yeah, lonely again. Yeah, you feel lonely. Yeah, it's sad. It's okay. It's okay. Like that's a whole different thing from a mind, say, completely absorbed in and lost in a cycle of grief and anger and ill will and despair and all the rest of it. You see the difference? The the arising itself, subjectively, the external circumstances might be the same, but what we're contributing in meeting that arising really makes it a very different subjective experience. So in that, we're no longer strictly at the mercy of whatever set of circumstances happen to arise, right? We've got some ground, we've got some grounding in real time and some wisdom in how to recognize and meet whatever arises, whatever is there. So here's some examples of what I'm talking about. So for instance, if you have functional hearing and we had a loud vehicle drive down Pleasant Street with the 
shrieking siren, you would probably experience unpleasantness, right? That's just an organic response. And that would be because the conditions are there for you to hear and the sound waves have a certain kind of pitch. That's a simple example. That's clearly coming from the outside, right? Hearing? Would we agree on that? We experience it subjectively, internally, but the genesis of that experience is external, right? It's like sound waves coming from whatever's going on over there and they travel through the air and then they hit the eardrum and there's sense contact and all the rest of it. Take a situation where you're trying to do walking meditation and your mind keeps going off into stories and worries. I don't know if anybody had that happen today. Anybody have that happen? A little bit, maybe just tiny. So you keep getting lost in these. So then you get frustrated at yourself for doing a bad job. You because know, we want to do a good job, you know. It's like, it took a lot of work to get here for this retreat. It's like, we want to do a good job, you know. We're going to be here and it's supposed to be doing this. And then, like, and then we're doing this. But really, you don't have immediate control of the thoughts arising, do you? If anybody had anything like that happen today, did you really have the control to be able to say, yeah, I'm turning off the thought knob but I just don't want to. I'm just going to like leave it on. Especially, I mean, do we have a thought knob? Rarely. If we could control that, we would uh, have quite a different experience. So if you had that knob, you could set the selector to uh, do not think, and you'd be able to do that. But as this illustration shows, there are causes and conditions that are not, uh, that we do not govern that are creating that immediate experience. So another example of this is if we had control, if we govern things, If we were in charge, we'd probably want to avoid the loss of those that we love, right? That would probably be right towards the top of the list. Or the loss of things that, that we love. And, you know, we can do things in real time to support the people that we love and to care for the things that we love, but we can't control the situation. We can't make things permanent which have the nature to change and pass away. And we'd like to do that, we want to, but we can't. So then what to do about this all? So the Buddha says that the path to maximum happiness is is learning to work directly with the truth of impermanence. So he says, it's really important to actually turn the mind into the truth of this way that reality is. To actually incline the mind to be willing to 
check out whether indeed everything is impermanent, to incline the mind to be willing to recognize impermanence and um, these limitations of our span of control, and then having checked that out for ourselves, find the wise angle of approach to the implications of that. So this means recognizing that change is actually woven into the fabric of reality and that things arise and manifest conditionally and exist in a form determined by the conditions which are manifesting. So to get on board with that truth, which is often an unwelcome truth because we would like it to be otherwise at least sometimes, right? but to get on board with the truth and let it inform us at a deep level of the heart and mind allows us to be wise in how we relate to things that happen. So this would mean on a deep level we can learn how to do a few things. One is to not waste energy and effort in trying to control what we can't. There's a whole, uh, in the 12-step program, there's a whole prayer reflection around this. So the kind of clinging and resistance and trying to control what we can't is the actual definition of suffering. And this arises from delusion and not knowing the nature of reality and how things are. So the second point is that we develop what's called wise attention to what is actually present. I remember this poster from back in the 60s that uh, I saw hither and thither in that era, which was a long-haired bearded renunciate doing a one-legged yoga balancing pose. So he was standing on one leg and he had the other leg, you know, crossed over and he was standing on one leg. Okay, balancing pose. Then he was doing this balancing pose on top of a surfboard. So he was on a surfboard and the surfboard was on a wave a big wave, and this guy is standing on it in this one-legged balancing pose. And underneath, there was a caption that said something like, you can't control the waves, but you can learn to surf. And that's a very direct pointing to what's being discussed here. So to tie this back around to what's going on at the retreat, you're practicing the process of connecting with your real-time experience with wise attention. And you're going to learn how to sustain that attention. Because the only place we can ever really do spiritual practice is 
in real time. That's the only only place that has any potency, right? The past is gone, although its echoes are there in present conditions, and the future is not yet arisen, although we're seeding the future in the present by how we relate to things. But really, the place of practice is in the present, in present tense experience. So if we're going to go into wise, i.e. non-suffering, relationship with reality the way that it is, we have to start by coming into real-time connection with reality. Right? Cultivating mindfulness, starting with mindfulness of the body, the sensations of the body, this very simple kind of exercise you've been invited uh, to do here today. The sensations of the body sitting in the breath, and then the sensations of the body uh, walking. Learning how to bring mindfulness and care to that is the beginning of the process of breaking free from uh, delusion and living in this hall of mirrors of preferences and longings and rejections of uh, what's immediately present. So, of course, you've wandered off many times in doing this, right? And it's a challenge to come back again and again. But, you know, it's a very good thing in and of itself that you've noticed that the mind has a mind of its own. And it does, doesn't it? It's not like, you know, you're you're up there on the buckboard and you're going, hee-haw, yeah, you know, go this way, go that way. It's not quite that subject to our immediate influence, especially at the beginning of practice. You know, the mind is kind of stiff and it's kind of awkward. It's like uh, learning to play an instrument at the beginning. If you've ever had the experience of trying to learn an instrument from scratch, unless you're uh, particularly adept for some unknown reason, it's like, oh man, the fingers can't find the keys and they're you know, you can't hold down the cord and you can't hear the string to tune it and it's a hot mess. So learning how to do this very simple yet surprisingly challenging thing of staying in real time and attending, first of all, to your body sensations is, uh, is a challenge. But seeing that it's a challenge and that the mind has a mind of its own is actually the seed of wisdom. So, why, you may ask? Well, because you're seeing the very lack of control that I talked about earlier. So that's actually potentially illuminating if you relate to that wisely. In a certain kind of way, it makes some of what we experience that we disapprove of less personal. Doesn't it? I mean, it's just kind of like happening on its own. It's like the mind is just like taken off on a tear to think about, you know, what you didn't do before you left home. And it's like you're saying, come back, come back, come back, you know, feel your feet, feel your feet. 
was going, screw you. It's like, I got to think about this. You know, it's like, isn't it like schizophrenia in there or something sometimes? It's So the Buddha talks about how the untrained mind is, is a little bit like a, a wild ox or a wild elephant. It goes anywhere it wants to go. You know, it's like off into the fields, you know, eat the tree, you know, down in the water, poop in the pond. I mean, it just does what it wants to do. And in the earlier stage of practices, you really see, okay, it's not so cooperative. It's willing, but it, it's it just, it's having, having a challenge, finding the groove and staying in the groove. This is all perfectly normal. Because as humans, our minds tend to wander around following whatever our conditioned impulses are. And those impulses themselves are conditioned arisings, right? So you might want your phone or maybe you want to be perfect, you know, you want to do have a perfect sitting or you you know, you some kind of fantasy of how it should be. But you know, one of those if you look at it from the practice perspective is just sense craving and the other one is just a a deluded idea about what's possible and achievable. This whole idea of perfect, wow, that's an idea. But there's a way to begin to untangle the tangle of the kind of delusion that causes us to suffer. So here on retreat, we begin to learn how to do that. So the question that we start to be able to ask ourselves is, how do I start to have a wise relationship to what I'm experiencing right now? Right? So you can see the change in, in emphasis and the change in task, where the mind, instead of using its energies to try to manipulate what's happening in real time, or get rid of it, or make something else happen, instead is deploying its attentional capacities to knowing what's happening. Just knowing what's going on, and finding a wise way to be present to that. So, there's a lot of experiential learning in these uh, seemingly very simple instructions that are given. Because you're learning how to wake up from the inside and that illumination is coming from your own effort to connect to what's actually happening for you in a wise way in real time. So that's the field of your cultivation and practice. And in this process you see all kinds of cross-currents in the mind. You know. There's the mind that wanted you to come here and thought it was a good idea. Then there's the mind that thought that that was really stupid and why did you do that? And then there's a mind that's, I can do this. This is like, oh, it's great to be here. They feed me. And then there's a mind like, they should have protein at dinner. It's like, I, I want a BLT. You know, it's like all the different minds. All the different minds. You know, you start to to be, to be realize that these are, these are 
arising uh, condition patterns of thought. And they don't necessarily, and this is kind of uh, initially a little bit disconcerting, but sometimes amusing as you continue with practice, you start to realize, oh, there's no like master control in here. It's like almost like, you know, different people with different opinions. <laughs> it's like, do they talk to me? Do they talk to each other? You know? Is there, there should be a committee or something where they can vote and, you know, agree on what's going on. But sometimes it seems almost like, wow, very changeable, very changeable. But anyway, you, you will learn the, the different committee members that can arise under different circumstances and their various views and opinions and moods and uh, preferences and issues and all the rest of it. And learning how to come to wise relationship to these difficult states uh, themselves instead of getting lost in, driven by or controlled by them is the path. And um, that aspect of working with the cross currents, working with difficult or uh, potentially sabotaging states of uh, emotion is a topic that Beth is actually going to take up tomorrow night in her talk. So you don't have to worry about remembering everything that I just told you. So what is useful to you uh, will sink in and at a certain point the stuff that doesn't seem to make sense may at some future date sometime, sometime arise in your mind with a, oh, that's what, that's what she was talking about. So I think that's that's good for now. So may the many wholesome seeds of the practice that we've done today be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.